people. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Just, I don't realize the scope of how many people are here until I'm up here. It's like, whoa. <laughs> um, welcome to those who I haven't really met before, to those I haven't seen in a while before, uh, for, and to those who are here regularly. Um, We'll get to that in a second. Uh, I'm really, I'm really excited for where this church is going. I don't, you know, today is like a day that obviously is the last day here, and I'm so thankful that God is providing for us step by step to where He sees that we're going, and we don't probably see that we're going. So, I, lo I love Oscar's confidence because I'm confident in God, and, I'm, and I'm, we all should be confident in where we're going because as long as we're together and we worship the same God. We have nothing to fear when we go into the future. I hope that this morning's message, although on the onset it's not necessarily, may not seem like an encouragement going forward, but it is. And as we delve into the word this morning, I, I hope that we are convicted by it, not only this morning, but as we go forward into our daily lives. Is this okay? Yeah? Alrighty. I'm going to read Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Now, just before I read this, I'm, st I'm continuing uh, my study into the book of Galatians. And last time I went, I jumped a bit forward and now I'm going a little bit backwards. Uh, but it's been about a couple of months since I have last preached. So it's probably going to seem like a new sermon to you guys anyway, unless you're going backwards uh, and following the recordings. Um, so Galatians 2, 1 to 10. So this is Paul writing his letter to his churches in Galatia. So it says, Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to, this, to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who were held in high esteem, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God, has no, God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to, to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles." James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized that the grace given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Let's bow our heads in prayer one more time before we delve into this scripture. Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord. We come before you, Father, as people wanting to understand your word. 
Father, we believe that although this was written so long ago, that it wasn't just for these people, but it's for us right now. We believe, Father, that your word stands the test of time and that your spirit continues its message to us. We thank you for your son who died on that cross willingly so that we can stand here and proclaim your name with freedom and no concern because you, Father, are the one who's in control. We pray, Lord God, that as we leave here, this scripture doesn't stay here, but it goes with us in our hearts. We thank you for all that you've done for us. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So you're going to hear me use the word gospel uh, a little bit, and I'm also going to recap a little bit about how we've gotten to this point so far. So in terms of the gospel, in one of my previous messages, Paul outlines it in his first five, five verses. It is the power of Jesus who saves us, saves us from our sins from the present evil age. And Paul very much believes that, well, not Paul, the, the Word of God describes that our faith rise and falls specifically on this point, that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that even if he didn't die, then our faith is nothing. So I've heard people say that, well, even if they just happen to find Jesus' body and it's 100% conclusive that that's him, they would still have faith. Paul would say, no. That is how much evidence, that is, sorry, that is how much stock is in the significance of who Christ is. If he did not die and rise from the dead, our faith is nothing. And that is the true power of the gospel because it is Jesus Christ who saves sinners, nothing else. Now, Galatians is a letter written by Paul and it is a multi-layered letter. It gives us good insight into the early church. Uh, it gives us insight into the theology that they had back then, a look into what it means to be a Christian. It also is a defense of the true gospel and anything other from the true gospel is a false gospel. Now, the dispute that Paul is addressing here in his letter is after he had spent time with these churches, he leaves because his mission is to continue to spread the gospel uh, to other places. But then we had these other missionaries come in who started to preach that, well, okay, faith in Christ is one aspect of being a Christian, but salvation also comes through the Torah, the law, and that was required for you to be saved, to follow this completely. And he's contradicted everything Paul had stood for and everything he taught. Now, we heard in my last sermon that good deeds does not guarantee you salvation. It's active faith in Christ first and then good deeds. Now, Paul is talking about what the true gospel is here to the Galatian churches. He begins to give an autobiography, starts to give a testimony about his life of where he received his gospel um, and part of why he might feel so compelled to write this letter is, and to give his testimony is about authenticating that what he gave to them was the true gospel. Now, this gospel is being questioned by the Galatians churches, so part of his testimony is also a defence of his gospel or the gospel. And we see here that 
truth is being challenged. Now, here's the key concept here for a big thing today. What is truth? Now, I was listening to a song and it just, there was a line in there that just encaptured how society views truth. And the line goes like this. Well, I guess truth is what you believe in. Now, without going into a lot of philosophy about what truth is, because this has been debated for centuries and millennia, however, if you ask me what truth is, I would say it's based on evidence and facts. Now, there are further, there's debates about what evidence and facts are, but ultimately, we need to land on something. There's no such thing as what I believe in is truth, because multiple truths doesn't equal truth. And I've said this to people, and it's quite funny because they get a bit frustrated these days if I am absolute about something. And I'm not even talking about just Christianity. It's if I'm absolute about anything and it goes against society's norms, well, you begin to be ostracized. Now, one might ask me, Tibor, you said truth is based on evidence and facts. How can you believe in God? Well, I watch in even in real life because I work with some police and also I watch on TV where detectives, they come to a case and it's all a mystery and all they're given is clues and a stack of evidence to follow and that's them trying to determine the truth. And the more the, the evidence they have, the more compelling the case is. And that's part of the reason why I believe in the Bible and what it proclaims. The evidence is compelling that the Bible is true. Now, of course, people debate this too. But if you really look at the evidence, at least it's going to make you think. Now, Paul is doing the same thing. He's putting forth evidence to put forward a compelling case that the gospel he preached is the only gospel. The evidence put forward by the false teachers in the Galatian churches a subject of a test against the real gospel. Now, is what they are saying true or false? There's no in-between. But by our society standards, this would be perceived as arrogance. I would simply say it's rational to prove your case and the, what, your evidence will determine whether what you believe is true or false. So, so far in Galatians, leading into our scripture this morning, Paul has received the gospel directly from Jesus and not from human beings. He was a zealous and religious man whose practices were above reproach, and he was actually a part of persecuting Christians. And in fact, he hated everything Christians stood for. Now, when he received this revelation from Christ... It changed him to the point where his whole identity changed from hating Christians to actually becoming one of them. So he was so confident in his revelation that he saw no need to confirm this with other apostles until three years after that. After his conversion, he went back to Syria and Silchia where he had formerly persecuted Christians and even they saw that he was not uh, the same, that once there, he was actually persecuting them. Now he was there and he was one of them. And not pretending to be one of them to infiltrate them, but was quite literally one of them. Now the next lot of scripture we're going to look at this morning 
is a continuation of his autobiography. In these verses, Paul talks about visiting Peter or Cephas, depending on your translation, and he saw James and John, but no other apostles. It appears that there was no disagreement on the first time he went and visited them, and then this second time, we'll see that the same continues. So we see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, Paul once again says he went back to Jerusalem 14 years later, after his first visit. Now, within this time, he has spent a considerable amount of time going around and spreading his God, spreading the gospel. And Paul's teaching would have been quite entrenched in a lot of communities, and a lot of people would have known about Paul's teaching, and they would have based a lot of their church life on Paul's teachings. So 14 years of time is a long time. Now, this is so significant because if Paul's message is wrong, then he has spent almost 17 years misleading people about what it means to be a Christian and following Jesus. Now, on this trip, the second time, Paul takes Barnabas and Titus. Now, Paul advises why he went. He didn't say that he went because he felt like he had to, but because he received a revelation and he felt called to go. Now, he met privately with the pillars of faith, James, John, and Peter, and he presented to them what he's teaching these other churches. Now, in verse 2, it says that Paul says he did not make sure, he did this not, to, not out of fear that he was doing the wrong thing, but he wanted to make sure that he wasn't running in vain and what his teaching was was not in vain. Because if the pillars of faith, the apostles who were with Jesus, agreed with Paul's teachings, and it was the same teaching that the apostles taught in Jerusalem, then logically you would say it's correct. Now that's one argument that Paul gives to the Galatians to say, you see, the ones teaching you, the false teachers, they say that, that you're, they're teaching something more in line with the apostles in Jerusalem. But Paul is saying, I was there and I met with them and I told them what I, what I teach and they agreed with me. Now Paul adds in verse 3 and 5, he took Titus with him and some in the midst thought that Titus should be circumcised. Now, just on a side note, just a, just a bit of history, uh, one thing we may not truly understand or even think about are the problems the first century church had. I've always heard people say, we need to go back to the church of Acts. Um, so the church today should definitely model itself after the Bible. I, I have no qualms with that. But the church has never been perfect. Now, along the way, the church has had different problems and different challenges to what it teaches. But we see the big problem the church had in the first century was what it actually meant to be a follower of Jesus and how the body of Christ looks like in different cultures. What we don't realize is how tiny uh, Israel is and how tiny it was where Christianity actually came from. And then as it spread throughout the cultures, naturally you would see that there would be discussions about what it looked like to be a follower of this person from this quite little country. Now, Christianity was never meant to be exclusively for the Jews anymore. And as it spread, the Jews saw that their identity was also being challenged as well, as Jews. 
for the sake of following Jesus. So these teachers who go to the Galatian churches, why not mash the, the two together? This is what they were teaching, that faith in Christ is okay, but that's only part of the way. And the Torah is significant, where you must be circumcised to show a physical covenant with God. But Paul never bought into this because he saw that Jesus embodied the law. And he understood that the law could only be satisfied by Christ dying on the death to satisfy God's wrath. Now, I would encourage us to, to, to look into the first century church. It will definitely illuminate your reading of the New Testament. But that's a side note. Now, back to Titus. So Titus is Greek by nationality and a Gentile, being non-Jewish. So some would have pushed the issue that to be circumcised is to fulfill the law. Now, to be circumcised was to carry the sign on you that you belong to the true God and therefore part of his blessings, his promises and salvation. And circumcision also symbolized Jewish identity in a pagan world. But you see, they're very, they were so stuck and possibly even today on the physical uh, attributes of what it means to be a believer. But even in their own scriptures, God didn't care so much about the physicality as, as he did the heart. In Jeremiah 4.4, God says, circumcise your hearts. He's not interested in just a physical sign if your entire being is not carrying the identity of who you worship. But Titus was not, meant, not, was not made to be circumcised as the Galatians were taught that they should be circumcised to be saved. So even here, Paul would not have allowed Titus to be circumcised. He says in verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Imagine Paul just went, all right, we have a bit of a disagreement here. I'll, I'll circumcise him just so we don't argue anymore. Imagine, imagine that. I think as, as soon as we start to give a little by way of what we believe, before you know it, you've given it all up. But the power of the gospel says, no matter how religious you are, you will never be saved. It's only faith alone in Christ that is the key to salvation. And if Paul allowed Titus to be circumcised, his whole message quite literally goes down the drain. And this is Paul's second argument, that the Galatians who were convinced that it was necessary to be circumcised, that even Titus, in the presence of the apostles, wasn't made to do this. Now Paul goes on to those, and he says, to those that are in high esteem, they did not add anything to the gospel, though they were pillars in faith. Paul didn't see himself as lower than the apostles in Jerusalem. He saw them as their, as their equal. And he says that God doesn't show partiality. We see that as verse 7 to, 7 to 9, that the gospel that Paul proclaims is the recognized gospel of the apostles. They saw that Paul's mission was to the non-Jews and they saw that Peter's mission, or to the pillars of faith in Jerusalem, it was to, their, to the Jews. And the pillars of faith offered their right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul. 
Now, this is so significant because the disciples who were here and saw Jesus witnessed everything were teaching the same thing in the Jewish hub of Jerusalem as Paul was to the non-Jews. Now, the last verse is a key verse and it's one that is so easy to gloss over and that is all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Out of a, amongst all this debate and all these discussions of what it means to be a Christian, we have one verse that's specifically there and not just snuck in. And I think it's so easy to gloss over amongst a lot of big topics. But we see here that this verse embodied the church and part of its values. We see it in the book of Acts, where in chapter 2, where they were charitable and they gave up all, all they had so that everyone was not without anything. If we're talking about a church like the book of Acts, for sure, that is a value that we should be keeping. Martin Luther said, Where the church is, there must be the poor, for the world and the devil persecute the church and impoverish many faithful Christians. When it comes to establishing false worship and idolatry, no cost is spared. True religion is ever in need of money, while false religions are backed by wealth. What Martin Luther is saying here is, where the gospel is, there is need. Whether it's physical needs, emotional, but more than anything, the spiritual needs of people. Let me give you an example of, or a, few exa a couple of examples from the early church. Sometimes we start to, maybe we think too big sometimes, and maybe that's not, and I don't think that's always an issue, but maybe we miss the mark of what our community might really need. And it starts here. It starts with how we treat each other, and Oscar touched on that just before I came up. It's how we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I think many churches can be marked with conflict and disagreement. I heard an argument from an atheist uh, saying, you all have the same book, but you disagree on so much. Look at the denominations around us where disagreements occur. New churches pop up all the time. If acrimony is, this, is defining the church, something is really wrong. Now, Tertullian, an early church father, tells us that pagans in his day remarked, see how these Christians love one another? This was not sarcasm, but unbelievers saw love in action. They saw Christian love extend to the poor, widows, orphans, visits to prisoners, acts of compassion during natural disaster, famine, war. Now, I'm going to give you two examples of Christians in the early centuries addressing the needs of their community. So the first one is, Christians would ensure that their poor brothers and sisters were given a proper burial, even purchased land for burial, when, um, as they saw the image of God's creation desecrated when someone was not given a proper burial and thrown into the wild for the birds and the beasts. They valued human dignity, 
even beyond death, not for the sake of human dignity, but out of reverence for God. You see, their society believed only if you could afford it were you special enough to be buried. Christians saw everyone as special in God's eyes and honoured that. The Roman um, Emperor Julian, he actually said, these impious Galileans, Christians he's, he's talking about, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Christians cared for everyone and exposed the inefficiency of the Roman public and their government because their government and their people did not provide for the needs of their own people, but Christians not only took care of their own, but filled the gap that they saw their government not fulfilling. Another example is from a bishop in Alexandria named Dionysius, and he says, during the great epidemic, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The pagans behaved in the opposite way. At the first onset of disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled even from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead. The pagans even ran from their closest relationships when there was sickness. And now Christians were going out to the sick and dying caring for them. Now this is all heavy stuff. At least it is for me. But we see what the true gospel asks of us a radical change in heart. The true gospel strips us of who we are and the world through Christ and we see only the world through Christ and Christ alone. Now the central portion of your scripture that we've looked in the message is that it is about God's progress and his activity in the world and it's not about us. We see that the same gospel proclaimed through Peter and Paul is the same gospel. And everyone who serves in ministry are vehicles for his word. We're, we're instruments and tools for God. We're not, we don't control the system. Now, on one hand, this means that we're, in, we're accountable. We need to exercise this faithfully, but we don't also need to be anxious about what the future holds. Now, Paul demonstrates this as he has no doubt that the gospel he received was true. God's activity in the world will always encounter opposition and conflict. As we saw earlier that Paul, in previous um, scripture, that we live in the present evil age. We shouldn't be surprised <laughs> that we meet opposition. Jesus didn't even sugarcoat this for us. Now, we also see through this portion of scripture what it means to what Christian identity looks like. Firstly, we see that the true gospel is not one of following religious rules in order to be accepted by God, but Paul outlines the evidence that the gospel he teaches 
is the same in Jerusalem and is valid. We also see that Paul is unwilling to bend even a little for what he saw Christian identity was. Whenever we allow a little bit of identity to go, we start to lose much. And this is what was happening in the Galatian churches. Now, identity is sacred for us all. More so now, individual identity is seen as sacred, whereby I am who I am, and I cannot change that. That then goes on something like this. If you can't accept who I am, then we cannot get along. And everyone is backed into a corner to compromise their views on some level. Now, Paul and the first century church had remarkable challenges. And identity was a big one. Because identity defines who you are and who a group of people are together. If I asked you, who are you, the essence of who you say you are, what would your response be? The first answer you give to that question will ultimately reveal your God. These are some deep questions that I'm putting forward to you. But most people run from truly discovering what truth is because it goes down a deep path. Even Christians do this. And you, and you see that when they might say, well, this is, this is what this means to me and this is what that means to me. I said this a few times that scripture is not subjective. It is objective and it has a specific message. And altering it takes you down a very different path to what the truth is. Now, Paul's description of identity for the Christian community demands that we Christians define ourselves exclusively in the light of the cross and the resurrection. Whatever we allow the dominant force to be shaping us individually and us as a community then becomes our real God. When opposition comes our way, which gospel is going to take us forward? A false one or a true one? My hope is that as this church goes forward, we allow God's activity through his truth to be our guide, no matter the challenges that we face. God's truth has stood the test of time until now and will continue to stand the test of time. If we believe the Bible is true, then this will be true, that God's truth stands the test of time. Because if something is true, it will always be true. Any untruth will eventually crumble before truth. May the Lord bless his word. I'll light the band up and I'll, um, I'll just, let's just bow our heads in prayer one more time. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us truth. Although there might be challenges to what we proclaim as the truth, Lord, we trust in you that where we fail, you, Father, succeed beyond our measure, or beyond our doubts, Lord. I pray, Lord God, as this church goes forward, that we remain committed to the true gospel, that we don't forget why it is that we come here, who we serve, and what we believe. We thank you for the faith that you've given us, Father, going forward. And I pray, Lord God, that we never forget what you've done for us. 
In your precious son's name I pray. Amen.